Welcome, Patreon subscribers, uh, to this week's episode of 10 Questions With. As you know, our guest with us this week is John Cronshaw. Thank you for sticking around and doing the 10 Questions With. We appreciate it. No problem. I mean, people who support podcasts, they uh, they deserve a bonus. So here we That's go. That's right. <laughs> Question number one is, what is something that many people might not know about you? I used to be in a fake German rock band. And we ended up playing in one of the UK's biggest art galleries where I stood there playing a Nintendo DS next to Rodan's The Kiss. Really? Yep. <laughs> wow. <laughs> um, how long were you in the band for? I don't know. I think we, we kind of did it on and off for about three years. It was a, a fake German band called The Plankton, and uh, we just sort of tried to see how far we could push it. I mean, our first aim was to get a gig. And then we thought, oh, well, if we can get a gig with this, because it, it was rubbish. It was just noise and um, <laughs> noises on a Nintendo DS put through a loop pedal. And we just thought, yeah, let's see how far we can push it. It was great. <laughs> that is, oh, that's very interesting. Um, question number two is, what is your writing kryptonite? Life. <laughs> I don't know, just everything else that isn't writing. You know, the need for food and I've got a child I have to look after and anything like that will just bring you out of the kind of writing groove because when I write I kind of have to warm up and get into a bit of a meditative state or a zone or I don't know what you'd call it but I have to kind of get into this certain headspace and it usually takes me about 20 minutes to kind of get into it so if I'm disturbed then that will take me out of writing for 20 minutes and when I've got limited time because of you know other things it's hard it's hard to get stuff done. Um, What kind of things do you have to do in order to get into your your writing zone if you don't mind us asking get out of bed have some eggs have some coffee and sit in front of a computer stick on my um, dictating headset and just get on with it because i mean i used to work in newspapers and you know you can't go oh i, can't, I don't feel like writing today mummy uses isn't here you can't do that you know it's this is work so i'll sit there i'll do it that's it really um so how do you overcome your your writing kryptonite i've got a door that I close <laughs> and um, you know I do try and just say look you know I'm going to try and get an hour done here or my wife understands that it's important that I get this stuff written and this is what I want to do full time eventually so it's important in terms of you know I'm seeing it as as well as being able to pour out my soul and all that it's also a business and if I don't treat it like a business then I won't do it I kind of put that thing there and I do stuff at night I, do, I get up in the morning I just get stuff done um question number three is kind of a it's kind of turned into a uh, a two-part question and the first part of the question is if you could have dinner with any author dead or alive who would you have dinner with and why oh kurt vonnegut (laughs) oh really yeah yeah yeah, kurt vonnegut because i know that he'd he'd probably really get on my nerves but he'd just be full of so many great stories and i'd try and pick his brains but i know he'd just be um he'd probably be a bit obnoxious with me about it but yeah i think we get on (laughs) so the second part of that question is if you could co-author a book with any author dead or alive who would you like to co-author a book with this sounds really arrogant actually and i'm not meaning it to be it's just because i want the novels to finish is i want george rr martin to finish the uh, song of ice and fire series Um, and if you know if it means me uh doing the work on there George, give me a ring. You know where I am. There we go. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> or get a hold of James Patterson. I have a book idea. You just throw your name on it and I'll write it. 
Oh, that's funny. Um, question number four is what book are you reading now? And then what are your thoughts on it so far? I'm on a bit of a um, medieval history binge at the moment. I'm in my, what I'm calling my research phase. So I'm reading a book about the Habsburg Empire, which is basically the Austrian-Hungarian kind of empire from, I don't know, 16th, 17th century. So I'm kind of looking at that because this fantasy story I spoke about in the podcast is kind of set in a Germanic background and I think it's kind of classed as flintlock fantasy where it's kind of in the emerging industrial revolution time so I'm just been looking into that so far it's doing okay it's it's an interesting read so yeah I'm, I'm enjoying it now when you do research for time periods like that are you reading mainly non-fiction stuff or are you reading a mixture of non-fiction and fiction if I'm doing historical research I will be into archives and places and texts from the era so i've read chaucer recently and you know looked at the um, medieval history books different perspectives i mean my my background before i went into journalism was in historical research i did a phd in it and got a doctorate in that so that kind of level and detail and you know that kind of research in a way you can pull characters and things out of letters and little scraps of documents and objects that exist in the world like gravestones or kind of standing crosses or anything like that. I mean, I know that I did a story in my collection called Her Name Was Red, and that was all set around the Lindisfarne Island on the Northumbrian coast. Obviously a fantasy version of it with different names, but it was essentially that concept and all the kind of historical stuff was there from that place. And, you know, there was a priory and the monastery and the old libraries and things like that. So I know a lot of authors do online research, but I always think that if you do research online, you're all going to be dipping into the same wells and coming up with the same conclusions. Whereas I think if you're kind of looking in different places and I think you're going to bring originality into it without forcing it, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, question number five is what has been the toughest criticism you've been given as an author? And then how did you turn around and use it? Oh, I did a uh, a writing workshop in, let me think, it must have been November 2015. It was not long after I'd walked out of working for a shadow minister in this country um, doing her press stuff. And Jeff Ryman, who is the author of Air and a lot of really great short stories, really respect him. He was one of the tutors on the course and he shredded my work apart. And rightly so, like looking back at it, it was terrible, but I was so hurt. He taught me about head hopping. I didn't know what head hopping was. I'd, I'd read Frank Herbert's Dune and thought that was okay to flitter between minds and change character perspectives without really any breaks or anything like that. And there's very few authors who can do that well. And he told me that, you know, my first novel I did, I tried to basically do a kind of Game of Thrones thing in a post-Earth solar system. And it ended up being this massive sprawling thing with 13 point of view characters and just it was too ambitious and too big. And this is why when I went back, I realized, right, I need to do a linear plot. I need to have one point of view character. This was the biggest lesson was I'm not that good at writing to do that yet. And I think a lot of authors get disheartened when they realize, actually, I don't have the tools yet to manipulate all these spinning plates whereas really i should be concentrating on just this one little thing 
and making it as good as I can. I think that was the biggest lesson was just focusing on one train of thought, one story, one character and basing a story around that. Basically not trying to run before I can walk, I suppose, to use a cliche. Okay. Um, question number six is, what is the strangest thing you've ever had to research online for one of your books? I mean, it's stuff like a dog health. <laughs> like for, for Wizard of the Wasteland, I've got um, a dog who is basically the sidekick, a dog called Pip, and well, she gets sick in the story. And I ended up talking to a vet all about the type of things that could kill a dog. Um, so, you know, if, if, if a dog got an infection from this, how long would it take them to, you know, all these kind of questions. What would be the symptoms if this happened and this? So I basically found out how to kill a dog, which I never thought was something I'd do. But there we go. <laughs> wow. Um, question number seven. Do you hide any secrets in your books that only a few readers might find? Yes, very much so. Yes. Can you give us a, a, a hint to maybe one of your favorites? There is very subtle hints at something that is coming. And through each book, these hints kind of get laid out more and more. There is a kind of thing that I did that was a bit of a, a joke for people who've read Moby Dick. I mean, The Wizard of the Wasteland follows the same structure for the first half of it as Moby Dick. Oh, in the okay. sense that it is about a guy who is trying to get something that he can't get. You know, he's trying to get the white whale, and I've got chapters with titles like The Whiteness of the Whale and things like this. So it's there's a lot of stuff about Moby Dick woven in, but then it takes a turn, and it's not like Moby Dick at all. But there is there is a very – I mean, my mate described it, one of my beta readers, he said it's, it's subtly on the nose. The main character, Abel, he's got a copy of Moby Dick. He reads it throughout, and he loves the book. And then the book goes missing – and he finds it later and something like the last third of it has been ripped out. And it's like, I did that as a kind of comment on the structure of the novel. I've had one person <laughs> mention that oh, really? who, who wasn't the beta reader. But, you know, I like kind of weaving in those little things like there's a lot of stuff in book two that draws on Great Expectations by Dickens. And, you know, unless unless you've been invested in these novels, you're not going to get them. But they're very subtle and so low down that, you know, it's it's a layer that doesn't affect the story, but is a kind of Easter egg. Oh, cool. Very neat. Um, question number eight and ten questions with is, if you were an animated character, who would you be and why? I'd like to think that I'd be Rick Sanchez from Rick and Morty, just because he's possibly the coolest guy in the universe. So <laughs> <laughs> if I could be anything like him, that would be good. Um, I need know, a... Have you not watched I need to it? watch that show. I have, oh, I have a, several people I know that watch it, and they say it's amazing. On the surface, it's very much a, a science fiction, jokey kind of show. But in terms of modern science fiction on TV, it is the best science fiction on TV. I think in terms of animation, it's the best animation. In terms of comedy, it's the best comedy. It's it's so good. Yeah, it's really sad at points, and the characters are excellent, and just very, very funny. Watch it. It's really good. Uh, I'm definitely going to have to check it out. Um, question number nine is, what would your autobiography be called, and then why would you call it that? Oh, my goodness. Um, what would my autobiography be? <laughs> That's a good question. Weirdly, I did this years ago. I actually did a autobiography called Keep or Call, which was an autobiography of me 
going through my CD collection and deciding whether to keep the CD or cull it, basically send it to the charity shop. And each of these CDs, I wouldn't do a review of the album. I'd do a blog post about the memories of these songs or this album brought to me and brought back. Um, so it was kind of like a, a weird autobiographical thing. So yeah, I'll, I'll just go with that because I've, I've already done that kind of uh, self-indulgent project. So, so. That's really cool, though. I've never heard of anybody doing that. That's a that's a neat idea. I wish I would have done that when I went through mine. <laughs> um, wow. Uh, question number 10 and the final question is, what is one of your favorite quotes, whether it be inspirational or humorous, and why is it one of your favorites? And so it goes. It's a line that comes back again and again in Kurt Vonnegut's Slaughterhouse-Five. And it happens at the point of death when someone dies or something happens involving death. And it's almost like the shrugging of trauma. Ethan Hawke did the audiobook of this, and I would recommend anyone listen to this because even if you read the novel the way Ethan Hawke, each time he does the line and so it goes, he delivers it in a different way. And it's like the meaning of the phrase, you know, it's almost changes because of the way he's saying it. And it's brilliant. It goes through the whole novel. And whenever I hear about someone dying or anything like that, that's the first thing that comes to my head, you know, and, and so it goes, life goes on kind of thing. And it's just, that's it. It's just part of life, isn't it? So, yeah. Well, uh, thank you for coming on and doing 30 minute author interviews and, and 10 questions with, um, it's been fun. So thank you for coming on. Hey, no problem. No problem.